Well, thank you to <clears throat> Seth and the team for leading that wonderful time, worship through song. For those that may not uh, know me, I just want to start by saying good morning, greetings to you. Uh, my name is Pastor Brandon. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here, this body of believers that gathers under the name Christ Covenant Fellowship. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, if you're new this week, number one, thank you for joining us. We're excited to have you here, thankful that you've chosen to worship here with us. Number two, I would love to meet you before you get out of here. Introduce yourself to me or Pastor Tyler, Pastor Gabe, or maybe one of our members. I'm sure they'd be more than happy to tell you all about what's going on here in the life of the church. Listen, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. Amos is one of the minor prophets. As always, it is not minor in its message, simply minor in its length. The book of Amos is found in the Old Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, that's okay. It's towards the latter half of the Old Testament, and it is sandwiched right between Joel and Obadiah. I'll give you a second to get there. Amos chapter 9. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. So the book of Amos is not this random collection of prophetic oracles, nor is it a body of work that simply communicates the words, thoughts, and ideas of the prophet Amos. The book of Amos does not give us direct counsel or practical instruction on how we are to honor the Lord with our lives, as maybe one of the epistles would. Uh, there's no giving of the law like in Exodus or Leviticus. The book of Amos does not detail the life of a certain individual, say like uh, King David in Chronicles or 1 Samuel, or say like the life of Jesus in one of the Gospels. But like the entirety of the Holy Scriptures, this book of Amos is the authoritative Word of God. And we believe that the Word of God, both New Testament and Old Testament, is a sufficient foundation for all matters concerning life on this side of eternity. See, although this collection of texts is a prophecy directly delivered to the nation of Israel, God's covenant people, I believe the Lord has much to say to us today through these verses. So what I want to do is simply read this text, then I'm going to pray and ask God to bless our time through the teaching of his word. So we will read Amos chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, and it reads, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. 
And if they go into captivity before their enemies, their eye will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a a sieve. But no people, or excuse me, no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Really uplifting stuff, right? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to fellowship together. God, we are thankful for the opportunity to open your word together this morning. Father, I have an incredible task before me, one I am not qualified to do. I could never speak to the glory that you deserve. So, Father, I am begging, I am pleading for your spirit to intervene during this time, to do the work that only you can do, to open our hearts to receive the message, the truth of this text. God, that you would do the work of transforming hearts and transforming lives through the preaching of your word right now, and that through it all, Christ Jesus would be glorified. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen. So as we've studied through the prophet Amos over the last few weeks, we have found a consistent theme. There is a thesis. There is a main idea upon which all of the text hangs. And if I were to summarize it, I would say it this way. God is holy. He expects those that bear his name to be holy and his wrath burns against unrighteousness. Now, I know for some that may be a harsh reality, but that is a reality nonetheless. You see, the Lord judges accordingly. He has the right to punish. You see, the pages of this prophecy have been filled with God pronouncing judgment on his people and warning them of what is to come. Friends, I don't want you to divorce yourself from the truth of these texts. There isn't a person in this room for whom this text is irrelevant. Do not naively think that judgment only awaits those that bear the name of the Lord. Judgment is beyond simply those who are in covenant relationship with God. You see, this prophecy was specifically given to the nation of Israel But God's judgment is not exclusive to one group of people. Here's the truth of the matter. We will all stand before God one day and be judged accordingly, regardless of who you are. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, your political affiliations, your accomplishments, your age, your gender, etc., etc. 
None of that matters. Every man must stand before God and give an account. Unless that man be found in Christ, he is utterly hopeless, totally at the mercy of Creator God. See, God has a divine plan that culminates in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Part of God's plan in accordance to his sovereign and divine will, he's provided us with his word. You see, he sent word even to the nation of Israel through prophets like Amos, but ultimately through Christ Jesus, the living word. And God has given us his written and revealed word, the Holy Scriptures. And one of the purposes of God's word is to warn of the judgment that is to come. See, this word serves as a warning to the unbeliever, to the unrepentant, to those who choose to continue in their sin and rebellion. See, the message that God delivers through the prophet Amos here is to alert this nation, to assume their attention, to draw them to repentance so that they would turn back to God. Now, although this message is is one of doom and despair, this is actually a good and gracious thing that God has done, warning them of the divine judgment that is to come, giving them an opportunity to turn. See, as we look at the text before us today, this is Almighty God issuing his final warning to his people. The Lord is again admonishing the nation of Israel and telling them of the catastrophe that is about to befall them. See, the Lord in his loving and divine nature, he's exercised great patience. He's been very patient with his people. However, his tolerance and his forbearance will not last Forever, his patience will eventually wear thin. He's given them an opportunity to repent. He's given them an opportunity to turn and be saved, but to no avail. And here in chapter 9, the Lord addresses his people directly. He gives them one final warning through this vision. God presents them with a fierce and frightening depiction of the reality that is to come. See, as we approach this text this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to look at this text from four points, four categories, four things that I think we can take away as we divide up the Word of God. Point number one would be God's judgment is inescapable. We find that in verses one through four. Number two, God's judgment is in accordance with His divine power. We find that in verses five and six. Number three, God's judgment is impartial. We find that in verses 7 and 8. And finally, God's judgment is thorough and complete. We find that in verses 9 and 10. So with those headings in mind, with that framework in mind here, let's walk through these verses together. Right? We'll make a few observations along the way, a few sub-points. And my hope is that we would be challenged from this text but we would also be encouraged by it. See, lodged within these verses, we find a great hope. We find great assurance. We find a promise. So I hope to challenge from this text, but I also hope to encourage with it as well. So let's, let's dive in. So if we recall, prior to chapter 9, God had given Amos four visions. 
Four visions that correlated to the impending judgment on his people. We've seen the vision of the locusts. We saw the vision of the fire. We saw the vision of the wall and the plumb line. And then last week, Pastor Tyler led us through this vision of this basket of summer fruit in chapter 8. Excuse me. And as we begin chapter 9 here, God had one more vision for Amos. And it's important to note that this vision is uniquely different than the rest. It's different than the previous four visions. It differs in its structure. It differs in its vocabulary and largely in the absence of dialogue. If you recall in chapter 7, we see the priest Amaziah speaking to Amos. They have a bit of a dialogue there. And if you recall last week, Amos even has a bit of a dialogue with God. God says, Amos, what do you see? He says, I see this basket of fruit. See, in this vision, there is none of that. There are no extra players or characters. Amos has nothing to say. This is simply God addressing his people. See, verse 1 says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, see, when it says he, that he is God, so that lets us know that everything that follows is simply the words of the Lord. That is the end of Amos's words. The remainder of this discourse is only God speaking that emphasizes the authority, the significance, and the urgency of this message. So what does God have to say to his people here? What is God communicating? Well, let's look at it. Verses 1 through 4 says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the threshold shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there they shall, or my hand shall take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it will kill them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. So from these four verses, we have point number one, God's judgment is in escapable. God's judgment is inescapable. See, in this vision, the prophet Amos, he sees the Lord standing beside the altar. He doesn't see locusts. He doesn't see a fire. He doesn't see a wall or a plumb line or a basket of fruit or anything else from the natural realm to connect God's message of judgment. Instead, he sees the Lord himself standing by the altar now, while the text doesn't tell us specifically what altar this is, it is uh, largely believed that this is the altar at Bethel, right? If you remember, that was a place of their worship where the Israelites offered their false worship, where they continuously participated in idolatry in the northern kingdom. So by most biblical scholars during my time of study, they largely agree that this is probably the altar at Bethel. So Amos sees the Lord standing beside this altar. So the question is, why the altar for the final vision? Why does God use this altar? Why is he standing by this altar? What is the significance here? Well, we have to understand what the altar represented at that day and time. 
The time it was customary for the Israelites to come before the altar with sacrifice, with offerings. See, the altar represented forgiveness and atonement for sins of the people. The altar was a place of peace, a place where they could meet with God and be in his presence and fellowship with him. So to the nation of Israel, the altar had great significance, great meaning to the people of God. So here Amos sees God. He sees God. The Lord isn't behind a curtain. He's not in the inner sanctuary in the holiest of holies where only the priests could venture. Instead, here is the Lord standing beside this altar. Some versions read that uh, God is standing on the altar, depending on which translation you have. But the point is still the same. God is present with his worshiping community. However, his presence is not a comfort to his people. It is a great terror. He has not come to bring blessings, only judgment. You see, at this altar, God's wrath will not be appeased. They can't offer their worship or their sacrifices to deter his judgment. It's too late. He's already rendered his verdict. So here's the Lord standing beside the altar, and he is supervising the work of judgment. He stands by the altar to show his righteous anger because they've profaned his holy name over and over again. See, this vision of God is not comforting. It depicts destruction, death, and chaos. So here the Lord issues the command. He says, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of the people and those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. You see, when the Lord talks about striking the capitals, the capitals are referring to these large columns that upheld the roof of the temple. And apparently these columns were very extravagant. They were very beautiful. They were decorated in a very extravagant fashion. And of course they would. We could imagine that Jeroboam, as he built the temple in the northern kingdom, when he assumed his place as king, I'm sure he really did it big. I'm sure he really did it up. I'm sure they were absolutely beautiful columns. See, the Lord says, strike the capitals, and shake the thresholds. Now the thresholds, those those were the stones underneath the doorways that served as a foundational support. And so God says, strike the capital until these thresholds shake. So essentially what God is saying here is, I am going to destroy this temple from top to bottom. This is utter and complete destruction. And this destruction most likely comes through the form of an earthquake. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 1, it says that this is a prophecy given uh, by God through Amos about two years before the great earthquake. So this is essentially alluding to how God will destroy this temple. The Lord says he will shatter this structure upon the heads of all the people. Again, this Prophecy is not one that is encouraging. It is one of total devastation. This is rigorous. This is all-encompassing. There will be none that avoid his wrath. In fact, the text tells us that even those who somehow manage to survive the demolition of the temple, God will kill them with the sword. God says, and those who are left, I will kill with the sword. None of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. This is a stunning and frightening reality for the enemies of God. 
See, in our study over the last several weeks in the book of Amos, we've seen that God's judgment is permanent. We've also seen that God's judgment is unstoppable. We've seen that God's judgment is guaranteed. Here we see that God's judgment is inescapable. There is no possibility of fleeing from it. This is an idea that's introduced here in verse 1, but God really expands upon it through verses 2, 3, and 4. So he gives several uh, situations, several places where people could possibly hide. But listen, brothers and sisters, God's judgment is vengeful. It's serious. He is not to be taken lightly. That's the point that I want you to take away from this. For those on the wrong side of God's judgment, there is no escape apart from Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Again, these verses are a stark reminder that God's justice pursues sinners and to the unrepentant, it will arrest them. God will render a guilty verdict. His just judgment falls upon all of his enemies. Friends, you cannot run from his justice. It is useless to flee. There are none apart from his divine mercy that will escape. See, in verses 2 through 4, we're given some hypothetical scenarios, some potential hiding places, right? God says they can dig into Sheol in verse 2. So now Sheol was the place of the dead. It was the grave. So God says even if you go to the grave, even if you end your life, the Lord says there my hand will take them. This reminds us that God is Lord over all, even in life and death. Right? 2 Timothy 4.1 and 1 Peter 4.5 tell us that God comes and he judges both the living and the dead. See, the reality is this. Even in death, we cannot escape God's judgment. Even in death, God is there. There's no running from God. The Lord says, oh, you can climb up to heaven. From there I will bring them down. So listen, even if you could somehow ascend to the heights of heaven, you can't hide from God there either. The Lord is there. His judgment awaits you in the heavens as well. And it says, even if they hide themselves on the top of Carmel. So Carmel was a very large mountain in that area. He says, from there, I will search them out and take them. So you could climb to the top of Mount Carmel. Imagine Mount Everest in our day. I, I believe that's still the tallest mountain in the world. Is that right? Correct me if I'm wrong. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what mountain you choose. It doesn't matter how high you decide to climb. Even the highest mountain will offer you no refuge from God's judgment. Again, Amos's audience would have understood this reference because in that day and time, a mountain provided a great safety. If you could set up on a mountain, you could see any uh, potential army that was coming. There was great safety in a mountain, but not from God. Not from God. And he says, if they hide from the, uh, my sight at the bottom of the sea, even if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, he will command the serpent to strike them. So maybe you're scared of heights. Okay, cast yourself into the bottom of the sea. Listen, God, even in his sovereign power and his omnipresence, he would command the serpent to strike you. His judgment would still find you even at the depths of the oceans. Okay, so what about those who surrender to the enemy, to the Assyrians, right? Those who would eventually go into captivity. 
What about them? God says, I will kill them with the sword. Yes, even those who are in exile, that provides no safety from God's judgment. Listen, God is not some geographical deity that is bound by location. So even if they left the promised land, that would provide them no safety. God will still inflict his judgment upon his enemies. He says, at my command, I will. Focus on these verses, verses 2 through 4. God says over again, I will, I will, I will, I will. It is all by his hand. It does not matter how high you climb, how far you dig, how deep you dive, how far you run. There is no escaping God's judgment. Listen, I often think about my my toddler, Marigold, who's one years old. I'm sure some of you have had the pleasure to uh, meet little MJ there. So sometimes she'll grab something that she knows she's not supposed to get. And I say, all right, give it to daddy. And what does she do? She takes off running. And I'm thinking, well, Marigold, where are you really going to go? Where are you going to go, Marigold, that daddy can't get you? Listen, if my toddler can't run from me, what makes you think you can run from God? You can't run from God anywhere. God is everywhere. Any attempt to flee is futile because God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is everywhere. Consider what King David says about God's presence in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. And it reads, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. See, King David knew he couldn't hide from God's sight. I want you to consider the prophet Jonah. Right? God tells him to go to Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? He says, no, I'm going I'm to run to Tarshish instead. We know how that worked out, right? Man cannot run from the Lord. Where can you hide? His judgment is inescapable. Listen, this reality can be a comforting one, that God is omnipresent, that God is omnipresent can be the most comforting reality in the world or the most terrifying one. For the one that God loves, his ubiquitous presence brings peace and comfort. But for those that fall under his judgment and wrath, his omnipresence is terrifying. You see, here the Lord reminds the nation of Israel that there is no escape. For his eyes are firmly fixed upon them, regardless of where they choose to seek refuge. And it says he's fixed upon them for evil and not for good. Now, I think it's important for us to make a clarification here, right? God is not evil. People will look at this text. I don't know if you know, but God has a few detractors. There are a few people that don't believe that God is this loving, just, and righteous, and holy God. And they'll point to a text like that and say, yep, see, God's evil. It says right there in the text, his eyes are fixed upon them for evil. Isn't God wicked? Right? We have to understand what this is communicating. Listen, God is not evil. The word evil here really means harm towards his enemies. It is his retributive justice. 
It is unrepentant sinners getting the justice and the treatment that is due them. It doesn't mean evil in the sense of the word like we would use it today. It's not immorality. It's not wickedness. It's not corruption. Listen, even God's justice is good and right and true. Amen? Again, the point is this, that you can't escape from the judgment of God. God is all-knowing. His eyes are in every place. His eyes are upon all men and upon all the ways of men. His eyes are upon some for good and some for evil, to take notice of their sins. Listen, to the unrepentant, to those in rebellion to God, judgment awaits. This comprehensive, unstoppable, inescapable judgment. See, this was the fate of sinful Israel because they continued in their sin and rebellion. God had fixed his eyes upon them for destruction. So here's a great place where we can apply this truth. Okay, we understand God's judgment is inescapable. Yes, tracking with you, I understand that. Let's apply it. Here's the question for us to ponder on. What does God see when his eyes are fixed upon you? When his eyes are fixed upon me, what does God see? Have I been like the Israelites? Have I rebelled and turned to my own way? Am I continuing in unrighteousness? Is God's justice pursuing me? Are his eyes fixed upon me with the intention to bring his judgment rather than restoration and redemption? You see, unless you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, when God looks upon you, he will only see you as an object of his wrath. It is only those that are in Christ Jesus who can stand before the judgment of God. And listen, brothers and sisters, you cannot bank on your own merits or accomplishments. And don't think that you can hide. I think we've covered that extensively this morning. You cannot hide. You cannot cover yourselves. Do not imitate your original parents, Adam and Eve, and think you can hide your transgressions or cover yourself. If you're here this morning, I want to encourage you. Rather than running from God, run to him. There's no refuge from God except in God. Right? And when we turn to this God who is this vengeful God of justice, but he's also a God of great compassion and pardon. Isaiah 55 tells us when we turn, that's exactly what we find. We find forgiveness and abundant pardon. Don't run from him, run to him this morning. You see, just as we cannot flee from the judgment of God, the Apostle Paul reminds us for those that are in Christ Jesus, just as his judgment is inescapable, his love is too. Right, Paul, the Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? We drop down to verses 38 and 39. He says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, what a wonderful reminder that is to us this morning. We can't escape his judgment. 
But we also, for those of us that are in Christ, you can never escape his love. His presence, he is with you everywhere you venture. For those that are in Christ Jesus. So as we are immediately confronted this morning with the reality that God and his judgment are inescapable in verses 5 and 6, we see why God's judgment is inescapable, which leads me to point number two. God's judgment is in accordance with his divine nature. Verses 5 and 6, and it says this, The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. So after directing our attention to man's inability to hide from the Lord, here the book of Amos underscores God's ability to pursue the unrighteous wherever they might seek refuge. Here we have the reasons or the evidence that God can indeed pursue a man regardless of where he decides to hide. And what is the proof of this claim? Why is God's judgment inescapable? Because he is creator God, the sovereign ruler over the heavens and the earth. He is the maker of all things. See verses 5 and 6, this passage flows with a hymnic rhythm to it. See, these verses are to declare God's glory and to really bring into perspective the power of Almighty God. See, these verses are interjected here amidst the pronouncement of judgment to remind the nation that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was like no other. He has all power in his hands, the sovereign ruler, master over all things. Verse 5 labels him as the Lord of hosts. See, that word host, that's referring to the army of angels and heavenly beings that God commands. They are at his beck and call. They must do what he wills. And that includes executing his divine judgment. See, not only does the Lord command this host of heavenly beings, but he also commands any of the armies of the earth that he chooses. So when the Assyrians come and they conquer the Israelites and take them into exile, into captivity, that's God's doing. They do that in his direction, by his divine will. The Lord is commander-in-chief and all of creation must bow to his commands. Friends, as we read these verses, this isn't simply a poetic introduction. This is a reminder of who God is, and it's a challenge to the Israelites to respond because of who God is. Now, I've said it before, sometimes the application is just to behold your God, to simply remember the God of creation, the God that you belong to, the omnipresent, omnipotent God of all power, of all creation, the sovereign ruler of the universe to understand this almighty God. He is all-powerful. He's not to be trifled with. Let's look at verse 5. It says he touches the earth and it melts. This is like the striking of the capitals and the thresholds, and this is most certainly referring to the earthquake. You see, God touches the earth and it simply melts. It disintegrates. It crumbles at his touch. 
What an incredible glimpse of God's awesome and devastating power. Again, the Lord's creation can do nothing but what he wills it to do. It is totally at his mercy. Verse 5 says that all who dwell in it mourn and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. This is very similar to what was said in chapter 8, verse 8. And this verse really speaks to God's total and complete control over his own creation. See, God has the ability to alter and intervene in earthly matters, to interject into the lives and the destinies of man. You see, just as the Nile would rise and then fall, God controls the ebbs and flows of human history. It all happens by his sovereign hand. See, verse 6 says that the Lord builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth. You see, God, by his power, has built this two-story dwelling for himself. The earth is his foundation, and his dwelling place is in the heavens. See, and as the builder and architect of all creation, as the builder and architect of the heavens and the earth, does God not have the power to destroy them? Does he not have the power to destroy as well as the power to create? See, God is the creator of heavens and earth, and he governs the heavens above and the earth below. God has complete dominion over all of it. Psalm 102 tells us that God, in his infinite wisdom and power, he laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of his hands. See, God spoke all of creation into existence. He alone stretched out the heavens. This also reminds us of Isaiah 66, 1, which says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Brothers and sisters, it is all his. That's why you can't escape him. It is futile to flee. The Lord is present in and rules over all of creation, all of the heavens and all of the earth. It's all at his mercy and must surrender to his divine will. Every single atom, every molecule, every particle is subject to God's bidding. Verse 6 says that he calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. Now this is verbatim exactly what is said back in chapter 5, verse 8. This reminds us again that God has the power to bring life and the power to take it away. So he can summon the power of the waters to bring life for good, or he can summon the power of the waters for his destructive purposes. And that's the power of Almighty God. The text tells us the Lord is his name. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you this morning, do you know this God? Is this the God that you serve and bow to, or is he a God simply of your own creation, one made by your own hands, one that is weak and impotent, one that's incapable of executing judgment? So he strikes no fear in your heart. There is no reverence. Is it a God that you've created, a God given to you by the theology of the world, rather than what the Bible actually says about him. See, the way that you view God ultimately will determine the way that you live. Will determine the way that you live. Listen, passages like these underscore God's authority and power as creator and king, and they demonstrate his ability to inflict the judgment and the justice that he has promised. 
See, for the nation of Israel, this serves again as a warning that this all-powerful, all-knowing, almighty God, this is the one that they've chosen to reject. And they'd, ar- they'd aroused his ire, therefore his just judgment is awaiting them. This is a message of impending doom, I know. But this is a reminder that God is sovereign and all-powerful, and he's hoping to grab their attention with this prophecy. It should shake the audience. Those who are listening to this prophecy, they should be moved from their place of complacency and apathy, moved to a place of repentance. However, that wasn't the case for all of the Israelites. They once again assumed that God's judgment would pass over them. They believed that they were secure because they were God's covenant people. They thought that his just judgment and punishment would pass over them. I'm sure they're asking themselves, well, why would God punish us? We're his people. Surely he wouldn't punish us. Which leads me to point number three. God's judgment is impartial. God's judgment is impartial. Verse 7 says this, Are you not like the Cushites to me? O people of Israel, declares the Lord, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. So here's God responding to their hypothetical rebuttal. God shuts down any argument or defense that they might have had, namely their history between themselves and God, the history between God and the nation of Israel. You see, for centuries, the children of Israel had enjoyed the favor of God, and there were clear distinctions between them and the other nations. See, they were distinct in their dress, they were distinct in their diet, most certainly in their religion. But see, by embracing idolatry, they they had erased these differences. And God now treats them as he would have treated any other nation on the face of the earth. There would be no concessions just because they were in covenant relationship with him. Imagine to yourself the people saying, well, we're God's special possession." God's chosen us. He's elected us. He brought us out of Egypt. God loves us. He's made this covenant with us. We're his representative people. There's no way he would bring calamity on us. You see, Israel considered her privilege to be her protection. See, as those that were descendants of Abraham and beneficiaries of this Abrahamic covenant, they were banking on God's deliverance, his love, and his mercy. However, they could not assume on their position. Yes, they're descendants of Abraham, but it is only those that live in obedience to the Lord and walk according to his ways that are actually the sons of Abraham. Listen, Jesus talks about this in John chapter 8, where he's speaking to the Pharisees and they say, hey, we're sons of Abraham. God says, if you were actually sons of Abraham, you'd be doing what he did and you'd believe in me. Instead, you're here trying to kill me. You're not sons of Abraham. You're sons of your father, the devil. See, it's only those that walk in obedience who get the benefits of God's covenant. Right? It's those who have been born again, those who have been regenerated, not just those who claim to bear the name, but you must actually walk as one who is in relationship with God the Father. I hope that reality isn't lost upon you this morning. 
See, the Lord, he was bringing judgment upon them, even though they were in covenant relationship with him because they weren't living as those who bear his name. And this reminds us again that God judges impartially. On a level playing field, there are no free passes. So here the Lord answers their false and arrogant assumptions. God leads Amos here to make an audacious claim. See, just as God had guided the Israelites, he also directed the history and destination of all the nations. That's why he said, are you not like the Cushites to me? I brought the Philistines out of Kaftor. I brought the Syrians out of Kerr. Guess what? As I guided you, I did that for them too. Now, they weren't in covenant relationship with God, but God directed their history as well. See, Cush was a country south of Egypt in the southernmost point of the Persian Empire. If you want to find out more about Cush, you can go to 2 Samuel, the book of Esther. Right? The point that God is making here, the comparison here, is between the Israelites and the most remote people on the face of the earth. God is saying, yes, you are my chosen people, but when it comes to judgment, you are no different. You are no different. Furthermore, God says that I brought you out of the land of Egypt just as I brought them out as well. See, the sin and the great folly of Israel was that they had presumed on their position because God had cared for them for so many years and provided for them and protected them. They felt that they could live as they chose, that no judgment, no punishment would fall upon them. My friends, the challenge this morning is not to duplicate the assumptions of Israel, not to make the same error. Brothers and sisters, here is a great place for us to pause and reflect on the implications of this text. Christians, you are not free to continue in sin simply because of your position in Christ. Now, I want to be clear here. Yes, Romans 8.1 tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Yes and amen. However, that does not mean that you can willfully, blatantly live in darkness and unrepentant sin and simply bank on a past profession of faith hoping that God's judgment will pass you by. In fact, if you continue to walk in darkness and live in unrepentant sin, I would have to question how genuine that profession of faith actually was. I would question the legitimacy of your regeneration. So maybe that's you here this morning. Here's a great place again for us to make a personal application. Maybe that's here, you here this morning, and you're banking on the past. Maybe you're saying to yourself, man, I, I said the prayer years ago. I walked the aisle. I raised my hand. Man, I even got baptized. I read my Bible sometimes. I give to the church. I'm nice to people. Those are all great things. But none of it's salvific. And it certainly will not deliver you from the wrath and judgment of God. Again, unless you are clothed in the righteousness of of Christ. You are doomed. It is only his justice and his judgment that awaits. There is no favoritism with God. You can't stand before him and tell him all the stuff you did or who you voted for or how dominant your ethnicity is 
how great of a parent you were, how many buckets you scored, or how much you can bench press. He's not impressed with that. God judges impartially. There are no free passes. See, for Israel, her relationship of privilege did not negate her responsibility. Right? In fact, God's loving and gracious covenant should have led the people of Israel to obedience and holiness. But God says in verse 8 here, he says, my eyes are on the sinful kingdom. Guess what? That's not a threat to the neighboring nations. That's God watching his own people. That's the sinful kingdom that he's referring to here. God Almighty has aimed his wrath at his very own people. See, Israel had lost the distinction of her holiness. Therefore, she loses the distinction of her privilege. Again, I want you to pause here as those that bear his name. Are you living distinctly from the rest of the world in accordance to what God demands? So here the Lord tells them, I will destroy this kingdom. I will erase it from the surface of the ground. See, God valued the Israelites no more than he would the Cushites because they were walking in disobedience. God would treat them as foreigners, as strangers, as outsiders because they had broken their covenant. They could no longer rely on God's protection, provision, or patience. They would only stand in fear of his power. However, for a small group, the house of Jacob, there is hope. Verse 8 says, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. See, God is a loving and faithful God, and he is merciful, and because of his covenant love, he promises to sustain and save and keep a remnant of the house of of Jacob. You see, this verse introduces one of God's most overwhelming attributes, his mercy. His mercy is highlighted here. Jacob had evoked sinful worship. So you got to remember, Jacob wasn't perfect. Jacob had evoked sinful worship back in chapter 3, uh, verse 13. Jacob had even demonstrated the arrogance and pride that the Lord hates back in chapter 6, verse 8. And judgment had even been forecast for Jacob in chapter 7. However, God says, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. You see, the better part of this vision had asserted that God's judgment is inescapable. And you can be sure that no man, by means of personal effort, will escape from God's judgment. But here the Lord says that there will be some that are saved. There will be few that are rescued. I will spare a remnant of my people. And this is God displaying his divine mercy. God saves who he wills. Make no mistake about it. It is the Lord that saves. He's the one that will deliver the house of Jacob. And it's not because they did something great or mighty. It's because God's sovereign choice. And that should humble us this morning. As you sit amongst your brothers and sisters, man, we are humble because God's chosen to save us, not because of something we've done, not because of our track record, in spite of it. In spite of it. What a glorious and comforting reality that is to be beneficiaries of God's mercy this morning. 
and think that this holy, righteous, all-knowing, almighty, all-powerful God would lavish his mercies upon sinful, wicked humanity, it's nothing short of astonishing. You see, just like the Israelites, we too have all gone astray. Isaiah 53, 6 says we've all gone astray. We've all, each of us, turned to our own way. See, because of our sin and rebellion, we are deserving of God's punishment and judgment. But praise God that we can fling ourselves upon his mercy. And that his mercy and grace, he has put forth one in our place. One who has borne our sins. And that though judgment is a reality and it is a certainly a, a reality that we deserve, we can stand before God with confidence because of Jesus Christ, because we are secure in him. Is anybody excited about that this morning? Is anyone thankful for that today? We are forever secure in Christ Jesus. That's how we are judged accordingly. That's how we are able to have any kind of righteousness. It's not in us. It's all in Christ Jesus. The Lord judges impartially. Finally, as we prepare to close our time this morning, verses 9 and 10 remind us again of the totality of God's judgment. And that leads me to point number four. God's judgment is thorough and Complete. Verses 9 and 10 says, For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve. But no pebble shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. See, this section closes similarly to how the first one began, how the beginning of chapter 9 began with the reminder of God's all-encompassing judgment. I want you to see the metaphor that God uses here. He says, I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, a sieve, liquids. Uh, so, excuse me, if you don't know what a sieve is, it's used for separating liquids from solids or it's used for separating uh, larger particles from smaller ones. And in that day, they would use the sieve to separate grain from rocks or other impurities. So what would happen is they would shake the grain to the ground. The good grain would fall to the ground. All the impurities, the rocks or stones would remain in the sieve and they would be thrown aside. They would be cast out. And so what God says here is that not a single pebble shall fall to the earth. Not a single pebble. And I don't want you to miss the meaning of this metaphor. See, what God is doing here is this is separating the wheat from the chaff. Or as Jesus says in Matthew 25, this is separating the sheep from the goats. This is separating those who have been destined for God's grace and mercy for those destined for God's judgment and wrath. So when God says not one will fall to the earth, he is again emphasizing that no one will escape his judgment. Not one individual will slip through or go unpunished. God will utterly and completely accomplish what he set out to accomplish in his divine judgment. But I also want to encourage you from this metaphor as well. Let's look at both sides of this thing. For I believe that just as it speaks of the inescapable, guaranteed, total, and complete judgment of God, it also points to a comforting reality a promise that we as believers can lay hold to this morning. Consider the grain that passes through the sieve. 
the good grain that falls to the ground. Right? It symbolizes those who would survive the judgment of God. See, this is the remnant of the house of Jacob that the Lord is referring to, those that would be spared. You see, just as the destruction of God's enemies is guaranteed, the deliverance of God's people is guaranteed as well. That is also a certainty. Your place in Jesus Christ, your salvation, your restoration, your redemption this morning is also a certainty. It is guaranteed, right? Jesus says in John 6, 39, that he will lose nothing of all that the Father has given to him. That's a promise to you, believer, that you are secure in Christ Jesus. You cannot be lost for he is holding you fast. There's almighty God that holds us. See, as we come to the end of our time here this morning, there's a great reality that we find in these verses here today and throughout the whole of Scripture. Right? We are reminded that, yes, God is a just and righteous judge, and he executes judgment. His wrath is aimed at his enemies. But the good news in all of this is the one that judges is also the one that justifies. This almighty God of destruction and devastation is also the source of deliverance. Romans 5 verses 8 through 10 says this, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we, be, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Again, the same one that judges justifies. The same one that brings this wrath and judgment also delivers you from it. You see, we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. We cannot run or hide from God. We have no ability to sway his justice. It is only through Christ that we can stand confidently before God. See, the wrath of God has been satisfied. All of the harm that was due us has been completely poured out on Christ Jesus. You see, just as the Israelites were in covenant with the Lord, as Christians, we are under the new covenant, the covenant of grace sealed by the blood of Christ. And as those under the law of grace, listen, God still has an expectation for us to live in holiness and obedience, to pursue righteousness. And the Spirit is what empowers us to do that. But you see, for those who God loves, for those in covenant relationship with him, walking in obedience and according to his ways, there's no need to run from God. There's no need to flee from him. So if you're a Christian in here this morning, man, this should be an encouragement to you that there is a sin bearer, right? Yes, the penalty of sin is death. Romans 6.23 reminds us of that. Penalty of sin is always death unless you have a sin bearer, one to stand in your place and praise God. We have that for us this morning, and his name is Jesus Christ. So as we end, I just want to ask a couple of questions. I want to pose a few questions to us before we leave this place. Say, have I fooled myself into thinking I am part of God's faithful people? Is God's just judgment coming for me? Are you trifling with divine forgiveness? 
Have you become complacent? Are you assuming that you are safe or banking on something other than Christ for your deliverance? You see, as we read these verses, again, I don't want anyone to be divorced from these verses and what they're telling, telling us. This demands a response. These verses demand something of us. So what I would urge you to do, urge all of us to do, is to avoid the folly of presumption. If you call yourself a Christian, examine your heart. Take a moment right now to do an honest inventory of your life, to look inwardly. Do not continue to walk in sin and rebellion, assuming that you are secure. Take a time of reflection. Where are you at with the Lord? Are you like the Israelites and just assuming on past deliverance, on your past history with the Lord, on a past profession of faith, but living however you choose, not distinct from the world, not as one bearing his name? Examine yourself Right now, see, for many there will be judgment and the righteous wrath of God, but for others there will be redemption and restoration. See, there's only one way to be sure you are on the right side of God's judgment, and his name is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that verses like these challenge us. They're uncomfortable. It's hard. It's not always uh, easy to preach through something like this, God. It can be very uncomfortable. It can move us from the place where we like to be or the place where we want to be, but God, that's a good thing. So Father, I pray that uh, for all of us here today, we would examine our hearts. We would meditate over these verses and be reminded that you are God, an almighty, all-powerful God who judges justly, fairly, rightly, and God, we wouldn't try to hide or flee or run or try to bank on something other than Christ Jesus. Father, I pray for those in this room right now that don't know you, for those that haven't surrendered their lives to you, for those who don't know Christ Jesus and aren't found in him. I pray, God, that you would do the work of transforming their hearts. Move them to a place of repentance, to where they come running to you rather than away from you this morning. Father, and that through it all, you would be glorified. Father, we thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.